Naaman commanded the army of Aram, what's now known as Syria. He was highly regarded as a fearless warrior. He was also wealthy and powerful. Here was a man that had power, position and prestige. He was well respected. He was admired. But. A small word that changes everything. But. But despite his rank, reputation, wealth and influence, he had a serious problem. What you might call a blight on his personal life. He had a skin disease, a condition that could render him ceremonially unclean and lead to him being socially isolated. Now his condition was obviously known to some and was no doubt of great concern not only to Naaman himself but also to his king who held him in high regard and his household who no doubt depended on him for protection and indeed for life itself because as master of his household he held their lives in his hands. And so it was into this situation that one of the young girls who had been taken captive from Israel and was serving Naaman's wife, stated that the prophet in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, could cure Naaman of his disease. And that prophet she is speaking about is Elijah's protege, Elisha. This remark is then passed on to Naaman and on hearing it, he asked permission of the king of Syria to go and consult with the prophet. You can imagine Naaman must have been at the end of all the solutions offered to him by the physicians that he had access to because of his position in the king's court, and obviously things were not improving. And it's a measure of his desperation that the powerful general listened to a powerless slave. The king, on hearing the request, agrees. After all, this is his best commander. He relied on him to protect his kingdom and keep him in power. And so he sends him off with a letter, not to the, prof the prophet Elisha, but to the king of Israel. And his letter is very specific. Heal Naaman. And when the king of Israel receives the letter from his enemy, being the weaker king, he was terrified. He thought it was some kind of trap to draw him into war, and so he begins to panic. But when Elisha the prophet heard about the state the king was in and what was being asked of him, he said to the king of Israel, send Naaman to me. As an aside, I've often wondered why Elisha the prophet wasn't the first thought, the first name that popped into the king's head when it was this, that name that popped into the mind of the young slave in a foreign land. Anyway, Naaman sets off to find the prophet, accompanied by his entourage, all his horses and chariots and servants. It must have been an impressive sight. There would be no doubt in the minds of any who saw them that this was someone important. However, when he gets to the front door of the prophet's house, he isn't ushered inside with great ceremony for an audience with the prophet, nor does the prophet come out to greet him, but is instead met by a servant who basically says, sorry, the prophet can't see you today, but he told me to tell you, just go and wash in the Jordan seven times and you will be healed. Now Naaman is none too pleased to be palmed off like this and fumes, doesn't he know that I am an important person? I expected him to come out to me and call upon the name of his God and I would be healed. 
Anyway, that filthy stream is nothing compared to the two mighty rivers of Syria. However, Naaman's own servants, who obviously know him well, begin to cajole him, again, at great risk to life. If the prophet had asked you to do something spectacular, you would have done it, wouldn't you? Well, all he said is wash in the Jordan seven times. What have you got to lose? And so I imagine, somewhat reluctantly, Naaman agrees to try it. I wonder what Naaman thought as he went six times down into the water. I wonder if he checked his skin each time, looking for any change. I wonder if he was just going through the motions. I wonder if the change happened as he submerged himself on the seventh time. Or was it when he stood up and came out of the water to dry himself? When it comes right down to it, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that the change happened and is so remarkable that Naaman testifies that this is the work of God. Going back to the prophet, he declares, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except the God you worship. Naaman's expectations on how things should happen almost caused him to miss this amazing change in his body and in his life. And I sometimes wonder if we miss a blessing because of how we expect God to do something in our lives, because we want it to be able to set the agenda of what should happen, when it should happen and how it should happen. Anyway, like the 10th leper healed by Jesus, Naaman, the outsider, the one not part of the people of Israel, returns to give thanks. In fact, he's so grateful that he offers the prophet a thank you gift, but Elisha refuses to take it, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept it. Not only is Elisha teaching Naaman an important truth here, it's nothing to do with me, it's all God. He's also telling him you cannot pay God for the blessings he freely gives us, not for physical healing, not for spiritual healing. What God gives us, he gives us freely. His love, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his acceptance. None of it can be worked for or paid for. It can only be received as his gift to us. There is so much in this story to challenge us, to make us think. If we focus on Naaman, whom we consider to be the central character in this story, then we can see he had a problem, a, a problem that he acknowledged and decided to do something about, accepting the help and advice of others. We can see that he was willing to make sacrifices. He sacrificed his Christ and he humbled himself in that he listened to those who had no social standing and that he did what was requested of him. We can see that he was open to change. He expected one thing, but accepted another. He went to Israel worshipping many gods. He left worshipping the one true God. He went expecting to earn his healing by performing some great feat. He left realising the favour of the God of Israel could not be bought. We could marvel at the fact that even though Naaman was an enemy to God's people, the Lord nevertheless showed him mercy and grace. And when Naaman experienced the hand of God on him, it changed him forever. 
So much so that he would go on to ask for understanding and pardon as he returns to a country where many gods were worshipped. And Elisha, the servant of God, offers it immediately, knowing that Naaman would become an example in that land. Yes, there is so much that we could look at in closer detail in this story of Naaman. But do you know the biggest thing that has always struck me about this story of Naaman? It's all the bit players. All the small people that move Naaman's story forward. An unnamed slave girl, Elisha's servant, Naaman's own servants. Without them, Naaman's life would have been very different. Everything each of them said could easily have been dismissed by Naaman. And many might think their parts so small, yet they have so much to teach us. For you see, even though they did not hold positions of authority, even though many might think them unimportant and powerless, they spoke up. By the standards of the day, they had nothing going for them. But here's the thing to note, it all started out with the faith of a young girl taken by force to a foreign land. This girl had no rights, no home, and technically didn't even have the right to an opinion. In many ways, we could say that she has lost everything, but here's the thing. She didn't blame God for the acts of evil men. She retained her faith in her God. And that was enough to start someone else's amazing journey towards God. Her story reminds us that anyone, regardless of station in life, can do things that have eternal consequences, just as she did, by remembering whose we are and whom we serve. This week, let us examine our hearts and ask ourselves, are we sensitive to the opportunities surrounding us to open up about the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, and something else we can perhaps learn from this servant girl and take to heart. There are always opportunities wherever God has placed us, and he does not ask us to do great and mighty things. More and more often than not, he simply asks us to do simple things. In 1934, Albert McMakin, a 24-year-old farmer, became a Christian. He was so full of enthusiasm that he filled a truck with people and took them to a meeting to hear about Jesus. There was a good-looking farmer's son who Albert especially wanted to get to the meeting, but this young man was difficult to persuade. He was too busy falling in and out of love with different girls. He didn't seem too interested in Christianity. Eventually, Albert managed to persuade him to come by asking him to drive the truck. When they arrived, Albert's guest decided to go in and found himself spellbound by the teaching from the Bible. He began to have thoughts he had never known before. He went back each night to the meeting to hear more until one night his life changed as he became a follower of Christ. The young truck driver was called Billy Graham. Billy Graham is the big name in this story, but the one who moves his story forward was Albert McMakin, who asked him to drive a truck. And every one of us can be 
and Albert McMeekin. <laughs>